you are listening to episode 306 of the App Percussion Podcast. I am your host, Ksenia Komlenovic, and with me is my good buddy, Casey Cangelosi. Hey, what's up, buddy? Hey, what's up, buddy? Look at you. I'm really surprised that you don't live in your office from how much work you do. You're like, I know, podcasts is very professional and serious. I take it very seriously, but yeah, couch today. Couch today, well... It's going to be a great conversation among friends, so you're you're in a good spot. Um, anyway, we're going to be releasing this episode on November 18, and we're going to talk a little bit, of course, about music history. So I'm going to start this off with a question. Casey, what would you do if you had $37,000 sitting around? $37,000? Yes. $37,000 doesn't go that far these days, no. unfortunately. <laughs> What's the dumbest thing you could buy? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think, I'm trying to contextualize this and like, man, I can imagine what some musicians have done with $30,000, $37,000. I don't know how thrown a bad party and I don't know, done too many drugs and not remembered what happened at the party. I'm guessing that's the story. Um, no, that's uh, that. I don't know if that'd be smarter or stupider than this. Well, I found this thing because apparently November 18, I mean, besides a few things happening in Stravinsky's and Beatles life, nothing. Um, but in 1990, a 26-year-old Beatles fan who got interested in the group about a decade after it broke up, paid $18,000 back then, which is $37,000 today, for what's said to be Paul McCartney's birth certificate sold by his stepmom. 26-year-old college student. She's a very, smart lady. Right? She is a very smart lady. And so she deserves every every cent. She deserves every cent, I think. But that's crazy. So I looked up what can you buy for thirty-seven thousand dollars? Uh you can buy an island in Nova Scotia. Did you know that? <laughs> or Paul McCartney's birth certificate. Um, a fifty-seven day cruise around Antarctica, Amazon, and the Caribbean, get a tiny house. Or again, you could buy someone else's personal uh, document. And uh, when asked, and this wasn't all, I mean, he paid $18,000 for the document and then plus like $3,000. So it was over $40,000 in today's money after tax and so on. But when asked uh, if he would uh, give it to Paul McCartney, he said, well, he better bring his wallet. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, isn't it? Wow. Yeah, I mean, fame can, uh, Fame can really help you sell anything and everything. And then again, it's also pretty scary that someone would pay so much money for someone's, I don't know, personal document. It's so crazy. It's fun also to see, um, I don't know if you remember the episode reported like how much a, a lock of Beethoven's hair went for at auction. And it was like, yeah, you would think it would be an astronomically large amount, but it was surprisingly small. Yeah, not as cool yeah. as Paul McCartney. Well, yeah, of course, but still you'd think like, well, Beethoven's hair, I mean, yeah, I would think that'd be worth, I don't know, a few thousand dollars, but it was worth like $1,200 or something really, really cheap. That's great. And could we clone him? Let's talk about that on another podcast where we think up ways to make millions, you know? <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, that's basically it. That's all. That's all for music history. Nothing happened. Someone bought someone's birth certificate. Um, anyway, so we are going to move on to why we are here today, because you will want to, if you pass by our guest, get a lock of his hair, because that might cost a lot of money one day. <laughs> or if you get hands, you know, on hair's birth certificate, that also works. Um, so we will be discussing the hot question of developing one's YouTube channel. It's something that everybody talks about, and my students love talking about that. Um, and so I thought we should invite expert above all experts here. Our guest recently broke the internet. In July of this year, within a matter of days, he went from a million views to over 30 million views. And by now he has over 260 million views and nearing a million subscribers on YouTube. That's crazy. I, I really don't think I need to say anything wow. anymore. It's, it's insane, right? What are these numbers? That's like countries I upon countries coming together. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't think a percussionist could do that. It's cool. Right? It's because like, any, like any, any, any percussionist, you know, it's, it's, it's so, it's such a following. It's yeah, really cool. We are here now to welcome the composer, the educator, percussionist, calling in from Canada, Joe Porter. Hello, everyone. <laughs> hey. 
How are you doing? I'm doing really well. How are you guys doing today? Good. We're in the Good presence things. of stardom. Oh no. I am I am this is like the most popular room on the percussion internet. Like I am I am very, very privileged to get to interview you and you know it's it's amazing what I mean Casey too has done, you know? He broke the internet back in his day when that white knuckle stroll launched. That was crazy. Um, Joe, please tell us a little bit about yourself so you can introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. So um, I I grew up in Fernie, BC, Canada, which is a very small uh, ski town. The population has about 5,000 and in the winter it doubles or triples. We get lots of Australians and people around the world coming in to ski. And I just grew up as a young boy loving outdoors and not really into music at all. My mom wanted to put me in piano lessons as a kid and I wouldn't do it. Now I regret it, but, and I didn't really get into music until um, just before grade eight. Um, that's when a school band uh, in small towns, <laughs> Canada, start up. Sometimes it's grade six now, but uh, yeah, I started in grade eight. And throughout high school, I was really into the drum set. Um, I played in a lot of rock bands and prog rock and metal bands. Kind of funny to think about, think about now. And uh, I fell in love with jazz at some point in high school. And I really didn't actually start playing mallet percussion until, you know, three months before university. So I had a, my cousin, uh, of all things, he became a tuba major at the closest university to uh, our town. And he told me about this cool percussion program and told me about all these instruments I had no idea existed. And at the time I was working at a sawmill and I was making lots of money. I'd work as a high school student 24 hours on the weekends, making a lot of money for a student. So I had this money saved up for school, but, and I kind of thought I wanted to do something with drums, uh, cause I had a passion for that, but he showed me what a marimba was and I had no idea. So I actually bought one. Back then I bought a four and a third octave uh, Vancore Paduke marimba. And I remember not really knowing how uh, treble and bass clef worked either. So um, I was very much into the drum set. So I learned how to read music well, but not, not the notes. So I spent, you know, a while just figuring out how to read treble and bass clef faster. I, I didn't have a teacher in high school, so I did a lot of research on my own, especially for drum set. And I'd watch lots of DVDs and videos and YouTube, that kind of thing to learn. So I bought Giff, Giff Howard's uh, Simply 4 DVD on how to play four mallets. And I watched it and kind of figured out the Master Stevens grip and I worked up a simple solo from that book to audition for university and and I guess they were happy with you know my lack of skill but at least the willing to learn mallets and then I uh, went to the University of Lethbridge for an undergrad degree and uh, my now wife girlfriend at the time lived on campus and so sometimes I'd stay in uh, the dorms there just to practice until like 3 or 4 a.m. trying to trying to get the skills that I was missing as you know as being young now it's so standard for young people to to play these instruments that are so normal but for my small town self I had no idea about any of the percussion world so I spent a lot of time just late nights catching up and then I eventually found that I really loved it. And I guess the rest is history. Uh, I went through an undergrad degree and then I did a master's. Um, I won't give too many details yet, but um, basically 
after a master's degree, I was planning to do a doctorate and I got into uh, a school. However, at the same time in Lethbridge, where I'm from, an art center was just uh, founded. So uh, I was offered a job, not really a job, but a studio to teach music out of. So it was this brand new building. It seemed promising. So I decided to teach music there. And at the time, you know, I started with about four private students. Um, so in Canada, there's not a lot of percussion programs that are built up like there are in the States. So um, there's, there's not a lot of percussion ensembles for teenagers or, you know, percussionists that are studying music. So I remember at the time, I thought, okay, I have four students, how do I make a career out of this? You know, I was thinking about going for a doctorate, but in reality, um, in Canada, there's not that many universities that have percussion teachers and percussion programs. There's only, you know, I could probably fit all of them on both my hands throughout the country. So I, I kind of thought to myself, I could do a doctorate, but is there actually a job available? And so I decided, you know, let's try this teaching thing. So back then having four students, I had to really work hard to grow a private studio. And then I kind of looked at it as an opportunity to start a lot of things up in Canada. So at the time I would go around, I, I made these posters, which is ancient history now, take drum lessons. And then slowly I'd convert people to percussionists. Um, I would go on Kijiji and put ads for our area. Oh, teaching drum lessons. I would go to like community fairs and with a poster, like come take drum lessons. And I'd talk to the high school directors. And, and eventually my job came from four students to over 50 students. And then, and then I taught private lessons for a while. And, you know, it was fun, but a lot of times for young students, they don't have a lot of direction. So then I started to create community ensembles for uh, different programs. So I created a youth percussion ensemble and pretty much just looked around here to find money for, for the program. So I would write grants, any grant that I could apply for, I'd write to try to get marimbas and different instruments, steel pans, all kinds of things. And then uh, we'd do lots of fundraisers. And so I started to teach a lot of different programs for youth, whether it was percussion ensemble or we started a lot of world drumming ensembles. And then through that work, then I started to do um, a lot of drum workshops. So um, different community members would come in and they'd be like, okay, I just want to have fun for two hours. So we would do Brazilian Samba or Taiko or Polynesian drumming or whatever kind of drumming that they wanted to learn. And then eventually the job kind of built up to where it was so busy that I had to turn down work. And then um, at one point, um, the University of Lethbridge program grew so big that they had to hire a second teacher. And then I was given that job for a while to also teach uh, university students. So, and then during that time, I also did a lot of performing. And then basically I built up this job, was really busy. And then COVID came and kind of wiped out at least 60% of my work. And so it's been a lot of ups and downs working through that, but uh, here we are later and it, it all turned out. So, yeah. Hard work, hard work does, <laughs> you know, and it's crazy to hear your voice like this because I, I know your voice from vibraphone, <laughs> xylophone, marimba. It's like you're, you're the Siri for percussion now. <laughs> And there I, we heard you saying this, you know, telling us this story, but okay. So COVID hit, is this how you got interested in the YouTube world? How did, how did YouTube come about for you? Yeah. So YouTube, um, I I've done it for a long time, basically just, you know, when you do a recital as a student, 
like a junior recital or a senior recital, I always thought, okay, we should record that and then put it on YouTube. Who knows what'll happen? Um, at the time, you don't really have the big picture, so you don't really know what to post, but I, I always posted stuff. If I would compose a piece, you have to get your compositions out there somehow. That seemed like the best way. So I, I did it casually, just, you know, not really thinking about doing it, but when the right opportunity came up, I would do it. And then later on, um, Canada was very tough with COVID because at least in Alberta, the government just changed their mind so many times about what it, what restrictions we should have. So at first they were like, oh, we can't crash the economy. There should be no restrictions. And it was just go about your business. And then they realized, oh, that was a bad idea. Take that back. Everything shut down. And then, okay, wait, we shut down everything. Wait, that didn't work. The economy is not going well. What do we do? Okay, let's add restrictions. Okay, businesses are important. Anything with the arts, uh, that can't happen, sorry. And so a long time, uh, we had to move to online learning. And because of that, um, I lost a lot of work. Like I couldn't do workshops with people. Um, some students it works to do online but i think a lot of them at least for percussion they don't have the instruments um some some of my young students it didn't go well because their parents some are super on board and are amazing like oh i set up a tv i'll be there to help them and others it's like here son here's a laptop your drum sets and pieces in the garage good luck <laughs> so it's sometimes it's tricky um but then basically went through these waves of, okay, we're, we're uh, running everything again. It's like, okay, let's have percussion ensemble again. Okay, we got all the kids, we went through this start, and then a month later, oh, you can't do this anymore. And, and so it was very tricky. Uh, even during that process, I kind of thought, you know, COVID long-term, is this going to be around? Are we going to be able to do this? Do I need to change careers? So I had so many thoughts of even leaving music during this time. But at some point, I guess, I, I'm always, I like to be busy with projects. So um, it just, it's fun to always work on something, whether it's composing or, you know, performing, whatever it is. So I think kind of the first wave, I wrote a book on on marimba, and then the second wave, um, I kind of thought, you know, let's just make some fun videos uh, just for something fun to do. And being a father of two young children, uh, my definition definition of fun has really changed. Um, my, if you think even five years ago. You know, I would probably be more serious, but half, after having kids, like we jam to Baby Shark and that's cool. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's no... Um, and the dad jokes. Yeah. That's, that's the one that really got me. <laughs> yeah. So there's no... I don't have any reference of what fun can be anymore. It's just... <laughs> I I kind of just thought, let's go for it and make some videos that might attract, you know, just kids or um, inspire kids, especially. So I just, I started doing fun things and... Um, Did you ever expect that, you know, like, hey, this sound effects video could have, let's see, 12 million views? No, like, um, cool. when I when I did my first sound effects video, I think it has almost 90 million views now. And literally when I did it, um, I was extremely busy that day. And I told my wife, is it okay if I, if I go to the university around 9 p.m. and just shoot a quick video? I only need to do like two takes of it, just, just to throw it on the internet. And she's like, oh yeah, go ahead. So I drove to the in university, I set up the instruments for about 15 minutes. 
And I just strapped on a GoPro and did two runs of the instruments and I had to wake up early the next day so I didn't perfect it or anything. And then I threw it on the internet quick, not really thinking about it. And then all of a sudden it blew up. At, at one point it had, it was growing at 600,000 views per hour. Oh my God. Sorry, no, uh, yeah, per hour. Yeah, that's correct. And it became the number, f number four trending video of all of YouTube. And wow, because of because of the rate it was going at. Yeah, so it became trending. And honestly, when I look at the video, I'm like, that could have been way better. This could have been better. I shouldn't have rushed this. Like sure. I could have made it so much better. But but I think because it's raw and maybe authentic and it's just a cool idea that people like, um, it worked. Um, it's, uh, so it, it's cool you mentioned like kids in mind and like what kids find fun i was talking to my sister actually just the other day saying like you know what do you think is the most you know viewed music video like be it lady gaga or you know any like super super famous star you know how many millions of views like oh you know takes a guess like oh you know whatever like you know 200 million views or something it's like yeah but once you get into kids territory it's in the billions like like I, you don't see stuff on youtube other than for kids that is in the billions so you should imagine like yeah if you wanted a side gig like if i were back in college now knowing what i know right now like <laughs> like i would start to film myself playing with kids toys and doing voiceover and doing little video edits to start rank raking up the like you know on your way to a billion views like what kind of money does that does that rake in for these people and i didn't even think of your sound effects video as a as a kid's thing at all i was imagining like oh yeah i bet composers are going to that saying like oh yeah what are those oh that's what a bode gong sounds like you know like it, it doesn't even you know hit me like it's meant for kids but it's, it's interesting you thought of it like that and sure enough like it took off the way it did uh, Six hundred thousand composers per hour. <laughs> like, that's right. <laughs> hey, they do need the composers do need to know that. I mean, the amount of times they like screw around in the percussion room to figure out what the hell they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if you think of kids' videos and why they're so popular, I think as a kid, basically, they're not specialized. So. Um, they don't have niches quite yet where they're interested. So let's say you and I go on the internet, we might be thinking of something that we're interested in, but for them, any kid's video, whether it's a guy being silly or acting or a fun song, they're all kind of engaging. And then the other thing that kids do is they like to watch the same thing over and over. So yeah, for anyone who's watching, if you wanna make money, just just go for kids stuff. <laughs> Teletubbies. There you go. <laughs> the Ksenia, it's even more basic. Like anyone can do it. Go buy toys and just play with them and like say voice over. And you know, the, the one I'm thinking of with billions, like it is like very well produced. It's clearly like a, a team and a, like a professional company. But yeah, I mean, there are views in the tens of millions with just, it's just one person and a camera and toys they bought it the store it's amazing that's crazy that's that's incredible wow and so when did you start monetizing your artwork yeah so um i guess uh, my channel was monetizing kind of early early july although um it takes some time to get into the youtube partnership program you have to apply and then they have to approve it so it, it could take a little bit of time, but usually within, you know, a couple of weeks is reasonable. And uh, basically to make money on YouTube, the truth is that you need a lot of views. Um, the people who are getting a lot of views are making a ton of money, but it's very hard for small channels to really, you know, crack that fine. Well, it's a big line where, you know, you're making some additional money to you're making enough money to have your income off YouTube. So there, there's a really big uh, divide between, you know, you need 
to get a thousand dollars you might have to have a million views or 500,000 views depending on um, you know how long your video is longer videos can make more money because they can fit more ads in there um, it depends where your viewers are from um, a really? lot of, yeah so a lot of yeah a lot of people don't know this but um, marketers will pay more money for targeted areas so um, you know and in certain areas you only get specific ads so you might go on around lunchtime and see a skip the dishes ad or I don't know if you have that there or things like that and so they're targeting very specific times and people who might order that food um, and basically uh, North Americans like for YouTube is probably a lot of the ads are targeted for them maybe it's the greedy corporations I don't know <laughs> but you might not get as much money from somewhere um, else so um, it's, it's a little bit tricky that way um, there's also things that people should consider if they want to become a youtuber for example if you're doing cover songs so it is possible to share revenue uh, say with who wrote the song or who has the rights to it so not every time your content will be claimed but that's a possibility where you might have to share revenue as well so yeah so everything depending on length um, if people see your video but they don't watch enough of the of it like those skip ads you have to watch at least 30 seconds of the video so if if some youtubers make more money if people watch longer portions of their video as well so realistically to make it on youtube just from ad sales you do need a lot of views um, but of course it is possible there's a lot of people making a ton of money um, but it is kind of depressing you know as a small youtuber to think oh i need at least a million views a lot like not just on one video but on a, on a lot and if if you do make it you can be really rich but it's it's tricky of course there are more ways than just ad revenue to make money but i'd say that's kind of the main the main way for sure it's not the amount of subscribers that matters it's the amount of views you have so even if you have like terrible videos that people don't want to subscribe to you but they watch them somehow you could make a lot of money so maybe people making cat videos that are hilarious and maybe not everyone subscribes to them but they're they could make a lot of money <laughs> yeah um, yeah wow and did you um get into your youtube partnership the moment that the light bulb went off and you're raking in all these views or did you do that beforehand how can people go about that um so i was a very small channel for a long time because you know i didn't expect any of this to happen i was just just having some fun and you know i i was honestly happy when i hit a thousand subscribers i was like yeah it's nice to be recognized there's a thousand people that you know support you that's cool and i was content so i never really thought that it would ever grow and so it just all of a sudden took off and and so it took a little bit of time to get it approved so there's a lot of views that weren't monetized but i mean in the grand scheme of things that's kind of small um but yeah yeah it, it just kind of happened unexpectedly so you know i listen to so many uh music industry podcasts and a lot of them are about these indie bands trying to make it and you know singer songwriters and they always talk about how it's almost impossible today to go viral i mean the chances are so so slim you can maybe do that on TikTok on like new um social networks where there's simply room for that but like to go viral on youtube it's very very difficult and you've nailed it which is amazing um well there's the best advice i can give to people is there's no rules so if you box yourself in 
then you have these rules and guidelines and then and especially if you're like looking at other channels and comparing yourself or something like that by doing that you're already boxing yourself in so because there's so many videos uploaded every minute on youtube it's very competitive but at the end of the day um i get a lot of questions like oh the algorithm gods are helping you how does that work and the truth is what we have to remember is there's a human on the other side of that video you created and they're probably not like you so you know when i make videos i'm not targeting you guys at all like i'm not thinking oh a professional percussionist is going to watch this <laughs> i'm just thinking of a lot of different humans and you know as as a musician i think it's challenging because we go through these phases and the deeper we go the less we rem remember the previous phases so it's there's kind of this natural progression for classical musicians we kind of go crazy by thinking of like repertoire and you know putting on these concerts and we kind of forget what the real world is like so what we have to remember is to when you're developing your musicianship we go through these phases and maybe when you're a teenager or a young kid you like these rock bands and then later on you might go oh i i'm just about classical music i don't like that and then, you know, even in that phase, you might be like, oh, I like Red Hot Chili Peppers. And then one day you're like, oh, Metallica is cool. And then another day you're like, oh, Metallica, that wasn't cool anymore. And so constantly our brain changes and we kind of develop as musicians and we're trying to go, oh, what's the next cool thing we can do or what's more difficult to learn? And as percussionists, we really get in that world, I think, when we think about recital music, we kind of think, yeah, we need to just make it harder, more interesting. Um, I like this because it's something I'm interested in. And we forget about all those steps before us. So when I make videos, I'm thinking less of myself and all the steps like that I'm at now. I'm thinking about what did my young self think about when I was seven <laughs> or what is this you know person from I don't know um some country far away that's never seen a marimba before I think or um you know I'm, th I'm thinking more in terms of you know people that may not be exposed to what we're surrounded in every day so back to something like that sound effects video for myself, I was like, oh, this is stuff we do every day. It's not that interesting. It's standard. But for someone who's not in that world, then it's new and exciting. So I think when you upload on YouTube, really, if you don't box yourself in and you kind of get out of your head a little bit of like, we kind of get crazy as musicians, like I'm focused on this small thing. This is the best thing ever and kind of think what's what's the world like and then if you want to reach a lot of people then you're i think thinking more like people who aren't yourself and that's probably a good thing <laughs> so it, it's tricky i think a lot of percussion channels you know especially for university students that are studying percussion and percussion composers and uh, percussion teachers it's all interesting for us, but maybe it's not a good way for a new person to get into it, you know? So there, I think there's a lot of things people can do that, you know, maybe if you had a five-year-old watching, how could you make it fun for them? Or someone from, from a country that maybe hasn't seen our instruments. Yeah, I mean, how could a five-year-old not be transfixed listening to velocities? Isn't that way, way more interesting than Baby Shark, you know? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people forget that uh, most of the world has no idea what we do, and they really do are not able to connect on that deep philosophical level, as you said, like going down the rabbit hole of percussion and what we tend to do in education, which is 
wonderful, but yes, we tend to lose connection with the real world. And then we just end up looking for um, affirmation from our closest circle. Like I think in my life, it would mean so much to me if Casey said something nice about me so much more than if 10,000 people showed up this, you know, next morning in front of my window and said, oh my God, we love you playing Bach. I'm just like, yeah, but I want Casey to recognize me, you know? Never. <laughs> never. It'll never happen. I just keep trying. You know? <laughs> okay. So I wanted to ask you uh, a couple of questions that were very like actionable for those folks who are trying to develop their YouTube channels, but you said basically there's no recipe. So I wanted to ask like, what are top three things that people should think about doing and avoid doing? But I'm guessing your answer to that is think about the outside world and there's no recipe, right? Well, um, so I guess there are some things I could, I could mention that could help people basically, um, yeah, there, since there are no rules on the internet, anything can go. And if you think in terms of that, then you'll try to get more creative. I think the challenge is um, people tend to look at other people and, you know, compare yourself or get ideas from them. But really what I think the top YouTubers in the world have is, you know, uniqueness. So you have to kind of think, who are you as a person? Are you someone funny that people just want to watch because they're funny? You know, are you super beautiful and people just want to watch that? Do you have a skill that's unique? Um, you know, how can you connect with people? So I think everyone has to kind of think about who they are. And honestly, everyone has traits that even if you think that right now you may, might not have the skills, I think every person has some kind of trait that, you know, could be successful. So I don't think like, um, like, I don't think that people can't become YouTubers for sure. So you have to think about, yeah, not, not boxing yourself in there there's a lot of strategies too so i try not to do these things but you know as my channel was growing i sometimes would find the time to watch you know uh youtubers who help other youtubers mm -hmm. and they kind of suggest things so there's lots of suggestions like you should find trending topics like if you go into youtube and i forget how but there's a way where you can just put in a blank search and it'll show you what people are searching yeah. and you can see what are the most popular searching or searches. So there's that. Um, so if you can find the right trending ideas, that could be, that could be good. However, if you can find a unique video or a unique idea that becomes trending, I think that's better than to try to, you know, hit something that's trending and compete with all the other stuff. But basically how YouTube works is it promotes videos that people like. So if you see a video that reaches a million views, it didn't get there just randomly. It basically only got there because people actually were engaged in it. They watched a lot of the video they clicked on it a lot. So uh, one of the YouTube uh, statistics that really matters is click on rate. So whenever people sees your thumbnail or your video, if they clicked on it or if they just dragged away. Um, so that's a that's something big in the YouTube world. Um, a lot of people work really hard on thumbnails to get them uh, to be attractive for people to click on them. So that's a little bit challenging because if you if you give everything away in your thumbnail, if people they might click on it, but then they already know what's going to happen or whatever, and then they probably won't be engaged in the video. So if you can surprise someone somehow, you know, attract them to like click on whatever you're showing they click on it, but something is surprising, then that's amazing. If you can just figure out how to do that. It's the art and, of clickbait, right? But in a nobler way. 
yeah so but even even a lot of my videos that are successful um people might like them not because of the video title but what happens in them so it turns out a lot of people like harry potter who knew so i made a video about different instruments and part of that i played harry potter on the glockenspiel and a lot of people loved it but what works so well is that they didn't expect that where if i just made a video about harry potter maybe they wouldn't be you know that pumped about it because it didn't it it was not well it's expected and then they kind of already know what's going to happen so kind of makes it kind of makes it more shareable because now all of a sudden it's it's like a fun thing to pass to a friend like hey check this out and all of a sudden you're like in on it because you're sending it to a friend who you know likes that and you get this little joy knowing like oh cool they're going to get surprised when harry potter shows up you know 20 seconds in or whatever yeah yeah so and again for us like maybe the three of us are not really interested in harry potter <laughs> but oh well, i'm um, interested so, but to the outside world mm -hmm. you know um someone who doesn't know these instruments and then to hear that they kind of get excited so um yeah so but basically any video that gets to millions of views basically has to pass through so many youtube tests so youtube will is really brilliant brilliant in the way that it treats every video equally so it doesn't matter if you have a million subscribers or one it'll test your video so let's say and I guess the language is it serves your video to someone. So let's say it serves the video for the first five people. If those first five people didn't like it, bad news video for the, or bad for the video, like especially if you have no subscribers, right? But let's say those first five people loved, loved it so much, it'll send it to 10 then those 10 people loved it. It keeps growing and then 100, it loved it. 1,000, oh, they loved it. And then it keeps going. And so a lot of my videos I posted a long time ago and then maybe a month later, all of a sudden it skyrockets because it's slowly passing through these phases and it's learning, okay, this person likes this part of the video. It, it's attracting this kind of demographic. So it's serving it to similar. Then it tests it with a different demographic. And so all along the way, it's testing. So if you have lots of views, it means that it was successful with a lot of people. However, it also works against you instantly. So let's say you did really well with the first hundred people, but then the next thousand hated it or they didn't maybe not hate it, but they didn't engage with it. Then all of a sudden it'll stop promoting it. So that's the very tricky thing is there's no secret formula for what's going to work as a creator. I have no idea what this 12 year old from India is going to take to my videos. So it's really hard to tell which video will take off. I think over time I can see patterns and things that work better, but, um, even recently, if I publish times, um, certain of my videos, they might be targeted at certain markets. So let's say I publish a video recently, I did the Home Depot theme song. Um, so that's basically attractive for people in North America. Well, what happened with that video is it was doing extremely well while people in, in America were awake, they loved it. And then all of a sudden people from India or Indonesia logged in and then they're not interested so then they stop clicking on the video then it has a lower click rate and then it 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 slows down and then over time youtube learns okay but every time an american sees this video they click on it so then it kind of learns over time and then it might just target american viewers and it could grow but it's a little bit tricky if you're making videos for millions of people to watch. What is attractive 
to someone in India or Indonesia or Australia or Canada or the States, it's, it's really tricky to find a video that appeals to everyone. And again, it's like kids videos work for kids. They figured out, oh, let's target all the parents that have the kids and let's just throw them all of these videos and there's so many people watching them and the algorithm really learns who's watching them so they do successful. But if you're making videos for adults, it's it's really tricky because um, we're, we all have different interests. So it's hard to find something that shoots through a big demographic of people. So that's, that's really the, the key. If you want to be a big YouTuber, you, you kind of need to have a niche because, you know, some people want to watch uh, gaming stuff. Some people want to watch cooking stuff. Some people like listening to music. So you need a niche to compete, but if your niche is too specific, it might not break it through the mass of people. And then your channel will always probably um, be smaller. So that's the really big challenge of YouTube because there's, I think TikTok is a little bit easier to target because it's mostly North American people watching it. So it, uh, obviously there's more than that, but I think that's the core of it. So it's easy to make a video and target, you know, North American culture. But on YouTube, I have so many people from Indonesia, India, you know, Brazil, all around the world. So it's hard to find the right ideas sometimes. My next question would then be, how does this online success uh, reflect on the offline world? I mean, besides obviously being able to cash this attention that is given to your output, what else has changed in your life since July? Um, so honestly, I think right now it's just more stress, but <laughs> I think one day I'll be, I'll be able to channel that better because um, I already had a job and then teaching mainly, sometimes performing and doing workshops and things. And then this YouTube thing came and now it's like I have two jobs. So <laughs> currently it's, it's a little bit overwhelming to try to manage both jobs, but um, I don't know. I, you know, I, I honestly don't like, I don't go to people and try to talk about YouTube or something. I'm, I'm kind of a shy person in real life. So I just try to do my thing and, and really I, I don't live in a big area. So um, I just kind of go about business as per usual and try to treat daily life like it's never happened. So <laughs> yeah, but I think you know, as musicians, we have to think about, you know, a pie chart of our career and our life. And we have to think about what's important. Like, if you have a family, how big should that slice take? Like, do you want to devote your weekends to your family? Do you want to work more? Um, how does that pie chart work? And I'm trying to figure that out. You know, should I just do YouTube and family? Should I you know, I enjoy teaching. Should I keep doing teaching? Um, what kind of work? Yeah, I'm trying to figure that out. So because this kind of happened unexpectedly, I have no idea kind of what even next month looks like. Um, just kind of just seeing what happens and taking it in, I guess. Well, what's your advice? Because I, I feel like a lot of people in, in our circle they use YouTube kind of to help them get attention or at least have a record of their performances so they can kind of fish for a, a job, like a teaching job. And of course, that's how I talk to my students about it, just sort of the same way you would say like, hey, you need to build a website, you need to have a presence. And even if you don't have a million followers or you don't have a, a, a huge amount of views, you need to have a place where if someone's looking to hire you, they can find you. Because so, so anyway, like like knowing all of this, how you know so much about YouTube and you've had such a success, how, how do you feel someone should approach like, okay, I, I don't plan on having 
so many subscribers or so many views, but I want to use YouTube to like as a tool to help me get uh, a, a teaching job, for instance. Yeah, so I think it's incredibly important just to get yourself out there. So you don't know what's going to happen. Um, and I don't think it's about going viral or reaching millions of people, but you know, we as musicians, we, we are artists and you know, at some point you want to get your work out there. And the challenging thing now is, um, just getting yourself discovered when there's millions of people in the world. So, you know, I think we grow up and we have friends around us and, you know, we might become big in our town and known, but maybe someone doesn't know you from, you know, that the, even the city next to you, never mind the next country or, or wherever. So the best thing is, you know, you want to show your art. And I think even, even things like recording yourself, you will become a better musician in that process as well. Um, so I think you, of course, like you said, you need to make a website. You need to show the world who you are. And it might take a while to get views, but um, sometimes one view of the right person is worth more than a million of the wrong people. Not that there's wrong viewers, but in, in, in the business world, if you touch just one person that could really make a difference, that's such a victory. And you can't really do that without putting yourself on the internet. So there, and it's amazing now, there's so many tools, you know, to make simple videos. You don't have to be a master at video edit, editing, but honestly, um, like GoPros are wonderful, even the phones now. And if you get some quality audio, that's all you really need. You don't need to spend thousands of dollars on this stuff. And you can, you can work with people who know what they're doing as well. But the best thing is, is just putting yourself out there and, and not, not, you know, not being afraid to do that. It's okay to fail. You know, we all fail at times. Um, even if you see some of my successful videos, there's tons of flaws in them, things that could be better. Sometimes when I record and things, I think, oh, this was so musical. And then I'll go and listen back and it's like, oh, I dragged that, I rushed that. This was not what I thought at the time. So it's a huge learning experience recording yourself as well. And there's some kind of stress about putting the recording button and playing perfect that it's just like playing for an audience. Um, you're going to learn how to be a better musician by recording yourself. And you're going to learn how to be more consistent. And yeah, growing your network is, is basically the only way to make it as a musician now. It's so competitive. Um, you know, um, my teacher always said, there's always someone who can replace you. So. And I think that's true in a lot of scenarios um, that you should just try to be professional, put high quality products when you can, but we're all, we're all human and not everything has to be hundred percent perfect at the beginning as well. So uh, you have nothing to lose by recording yourself and putting it up. And probably 10 years later, you're going to look back and think, oh, that wasn't very good, but that's okay. We all do that. So, I, And I'd love to just add to, you know, anyone who's hearing this and giving it some thought, uh, you know, we put out a job application. We had an opening here at JMU recently, so I got applicants and I looked over applications and I saw people's submissions and all that. And I think it's very easy to think, wow, there's so many performers out there with slick YouTube videos and good recordings. But what I saw from these applications, actually I was shocked how many people just didn't have like adequate performances up or the ones they did have were four years old. Um, so yeah, it looks like there's a lot of people out there doing it and there certainly are, but there's a lot more not doing it. Yeah. And to further this advice, um, I think what we have to think about as musicians is, 
no matter what career you choose, it's going to be hard work. So, and often musicians are not as business oriented as we should be. Like, for example, let's say you want to be a lawyer. You have to do all this training. You have to be extremely professional with every single client. You can't make many mistakes or else that's, that's a huge problem, right? You have to really take your job seriously. And I think sometimes musicians, they don't have this, this thought of being professional or, you know, working hard always. It, so it doesn't matter what career you take, it's going to be hard work. So if you're a musician and you want to get a job, then you have to work hard. You need to make some videos of you. You need to, you know, at the interview, be very professional. You need to be professional of all the steps you take, you know, up to that job. It just like that lawyer would. And so you want to compare yourself if you want to be treated and try to get those those awesome jobs, then you have to think about, you know, what's a parallel in the business world and you know, I have to be at least that professional to succeed. And of course, um, if you don't have, it'd be like McDonald's saying like, come to our store for the first time and, you know, they don't have a menu. <laughs> you know, it's like for a musician, your videos are your menu, menu you know? So, if, you know, and if you don't have that menu to offer people, it's because there's so many people, they're just going to go to the next person with, you know, a really nice menu. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's so much good stuff there. Um, okay, so now we're going to move on. We have a couple of social media questions that we're going to do a little bit more rapidly. So here we have our first question from Ryan Carlisle, who always submits great questions. Thank you, Ryan. He said, thanks for your help with six mallets all those years ago, Joe. Is it better to upload regularly or only upload your best content? What do you think? Um, I think when you're starting, I would focus on your best content because um, the challenging thing about YouTube is if you're trying to grow subscribers or something like that, it's really easy for people to unsubscribe. So. You know, um, so I would say at least to establish yourself, you want to work hard and put out good stuff. Although that's not what I did. I just worked quick and it worked out somehow. So um, don't do as I do, but do as I say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Good, good, good. Okay, Casey, you're going to read the next one. Yeah, sure. Our buddy Josh Jones. Hey, Josh, what's up, buddy? Uh, simply asked, not necessarily YouTube related here, but just how do you get so good at so many percussion instruments? Quick advice on getting uh, proficient at so many instruments. Yeah, so just quick advice would be, um, you know, for myself, I was mostly self-taught until university. So I had to figure out what worked and what, what didn't. So my best advice for anyone when they get a new instrument would be, you know, you have to explore with it. Don't be afraid to fail, but then you have to analyze constantly. Like, why does this stroke work and why does that one not? Why does it hurt my body when I'm doing this and when I'm doing that, it doesn't? Why, why can I get a consistent sound when I do it like this, but if I hold it this way, it's like a little bit inconsistent. So you can basically teach yourself anything if you analyze what you're doing and and really make a list for yourself of what successful and what isn't. And from there, you can really um, try anything. And then also at the same time, we're in the digital world, there's videos on almost anything. So if you combine those two approaches, watch something, if you can find it and analyze what you're doing, I think you can learn anything. Yeah, and that question comes from Josh, who is also such a rock star. And yeah, and Josh actually, um, when he became the principal percussionist of the Calgary Philharmonic, that was two hours from where I live. So I've met Josh a couple times and yeah, Josh, you're awesome. 
He said also, Joe, you're so cool. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> Lots of bro love going around. Uh, awesome. Then we have Thomas Waller, Thomas Perk on Instagram saying, uh, where is a good place to start equipment wise to put out high quality video audio performances? You know, um, like if you want to purchase equipment, the best thing I could tell you is lighting is more important than the device recording it. So even if you're capturing from your phone, if you just buy some cheap lights, um, like I have lots of cheap lights, um, you know, maybe $60 or I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We saw that for those um, listening. He just showed us his studio. <laughs> um, it's very messy, but um, uh, lighting is more important, I'd say. Now, the other thing I think about is almost all users. I shouldn't say almost all most users watch from their phone. So when I'm trying to record marimba, that's a super complicated instrument to record. And usually we buy these fancy microphones, but those like clip the heck out of cell phones they can't handle so actually simpler microphones just cheap condenser mics are actually better for cell phone viewing on instruments like marimba so sometimes less is more which is kind of a weird thing to think about um, we want the highest quality but you know if you have an amazing recording that sounds good on your headphones well, the reality is most people aren't listening with headphones. So we could have this debate probably all night long, like, should you make the best recording quality or should you make it for phones? It depends on your platform, I'd say. So if you're making YouTube videos, obviously quality is important, but I'd say people watch videos less for quality and more about the content. Yeah. For sure. That's that's very well said and it echoes. We've had a lot of folks come through and say the same things from the stuff that you said about lighting to, you know, make sure that you know your audience, basically. If everybody happens to use their phone listening to you, then I mean if you love it, you mix that thing for a great set of speakers or headphones and keep that to yourself or launch that as separate like deluxe fancy version of it. But also make sure that people can get it on the device that they're using I think that's important that's also so much good stuff um our last uh question you answered before but we want to say thank you to Jesse Guo for asking do you think it's possible to grow a significant audience without making content for the masses uh, I think Joe spoke about that a lot it's um, it possible I'd say like like there's yoga people that have millions of subscribers but you know not everyone does yoga so it is possible, but um, it, it all depends on, you know, you, you do have to be realistic. Like, um, uh, like even if I released a video of Bach, can I compete with like Yo-Yo Ma's already established Bach recordings? There's some, you have to think a little bit like that as well. Um, so it is possible. I think, again, there's no rule. So if if you can make it work, it works. Uh, so if you think like that, it could work. Exactly. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you, Joe, so, so much for being our guest. That was hugely informative. Um, insiders, you know, perspective on YouTube. It's really great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. Absolutely. Nice we to meet you, Joe. Yeah, likewise. We wish you all the best. Have a fabulous growing career, and we hope that it doesn't add stress, but it gives you the freedom to do what you want. It's probably going to kick in soon. I really hope so. Yeah, I think for anyone who's stressed out, just think about your pie chart, and over time, you can customize it to what you want it to look like. So I think for me, that'll come soon, and for you, it could come today. So. I, I, I already stopped at like, whenever you're stressed, just think about pie. I'm like, that's a, that already is a great thing. Just think about pie when you're stressed. We need to work on this English 
Ksenia, that's that's not what he's talking about. No, it's it's a problem. I can be your, your test subject for what happens in countries that are not America, Joe. There you go. <laughs> All of these crazy people over there in Europe. <laughs> well, fabulous. Um, thank you again, everybody who heard it here on the podcast. How to, I mean, how to go viral as a percussionist. So amazing. So much hard, hard work and so much talent. But it works out and it's all about that love and passion that never stops it's about fun so fantastic thank you joe thank you casey wonderful episode and i look forward to seeing you on the next one ciao thanks y'all bye